This episode of the Vincast, as always, is supported by Venus, the iPhone app which recognizes any wine with just the snap of a photo. I'm sure you've been in a situation out uh, at a wine bar or a restaurant where you've really enjoyed a wine, but the next day or several days later, you can't remember what the wine was and you'd really like to, to buy it. Well, the iPhone is a fantastic tool with which you can take a photo of that label, but the Venus app is even better because it recognizes what the wine is and it, you can track it and log it and share it with um, one of the fastest growing networks of wine lovers out there it is for users in australia and new zealand exclusively and with the app you can actually find out where you might be able to buy it and what you might expect to pay for that wine uh, i suggest going to www.getvinus.com forward slash vincast download the app and you can just see how easy it is and not to mention the fact that it's free venus is changing the way people enjoy wine Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome back to another episode of the Vincast, the podcast all about wine, wine culture, and wine people. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and I do hope you guys had an absolutely fantastic Christmas, uh, sharing some wonderful food and, more importantly, wines with uh, family and friends. And if you listen to this episode the day it goes up, have an absolutely fantastic New Year's Eve uh, tonight, and um Crack open a really good bottle of wine because we don't get the opportunity to celebrate New Year's very often. As always, I really appreciate you guys um, keeping in touch with me via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and um, even the website as well. And when new episodes go up, uh, I always appreciate it when you uh, also share it. So um, that's a retweet or a share or like on Facebook. Um, comments, uh, always appreciated. It's been fantastic to get some feedback, but also um, some appreciation for the guests that I have on the podcast who do very generously donate their time to be on a podcast talking about themselves essentially not something that uh, I think many people really enjoy that much. Um, so uh, for this episode, I actually have got someone who I admire a lot. Uh, his name is Anthony Danna. Uh, his family have um, been running a very successful um, uh, wine business, uh, retail business out in Borwin, which is in the eastern part of uh, Melbourne, and um, particularly well known for uh, Italian wines, uh, which Anthony more recently has actually been importing as well with Mondo Imports. They also own Hoddles Creek Estate out in the Yarra Valley, which makes some beautiful Chardonnays and Pinot Noir. And so he came on board uh, the podcast and talked about his background growing up with wine and food and that Italian kind of heritage, uh, his love of uh, all things Italian wine. And um, it was a really fascinating chat. So um, I hope you enjoy it and uh, I'll see you on the other side. Anthony, thank you very much for joining me today on the Vincast. Uh, I know how busy you must be uh, heading into Christmas um, with all the businesses, but um, I really appreciate your time. No, no problem at all. It's always uh, good to get in and to get out of the uh, environment and, you know, <laughs> take uh, an hour or two just to reflect on, you know, what a crazy time, but also, you know, how much we've done in the last few months. So, no, thank you. But, um, Going right back, what is your kind of earliest memory of of wine um, um, in, in your life? Obviously, it's been around. Yeah, it's you been around for your life. Our grandparents, um, you know, on both sides had vineyards in Calabria. Um, you know, my father, 
you know, in 63 with his brother, he opened a mixed grocery store. So I've always been around wine, you know, where our, you know, current setup is at Boccaccio where we moved six months ago. You know, I was, you know, born and raised upstairs. So it's something that, you know, for me, it's always been a part of my whole life. So there's no moment where I could say, right, this is where I was introduced <laughs> to wine. Wine to me is something that's been with me from birth. So was it always something you knew you were kind of uh, going into, or was no, there a crystal not, moment that kind of made you go, "Yes, uh, I love wine. This is what I want to do." Yeah, look, not really. I, I'm lucky that I've had a father that's, you know, let me run my, my own race. So, um, you know, basically, you know, in the, when I was doing my last year of school, I actually did um, university accounting. So, you know, I was it was good in a way in that then I didn't have to do any accounting for two years. So. Yeah. I had two years at uni where I basically just, you know, revolved around food and wine, but it was only until probably, you know, my, my fourth year that I decided, yeah, I want to join the family business and, um, you know, and, and, you know, make wine my life. So, you know, up until that stage, you know, any holiday was, you know, always with my father, um, selling wine. So, and same with my twin brother and, you know, my twin brother, I did a five year degree. He did a three year degree after mm-hmm. three years, he went to Hoddles Creek and, um, and he's, he's never left. For me, I did five years. And then um, after five years, you know, working at Picacho, I started Monday. So it's it's been an evolution the whole way through. Um, now, obviously, your family is of Italian extraction yeah. uh, from Calabria. Were you born in Italy? Were you no, born in my Australia? parents were born in Italy and they came to Australia as young children. So it's funny to think that they're, you know, more... They've spent more time in Australia than in Italy. But, you know, obviously, the Italian way is a, is a big big part of uh, our life and my family life so um yeah it's it's funny i went back to calabria to my mum's house last year and um you know i consider myself you know an italian australian but the connection wasn't the same as you know when i when i visited my my mum's house i thought god i'm really not that uh italian i'm you know more australian so that was a bit of a culture shock so yeah were you, were you a bit disappointed ah uh, no not disappointed probably in a way more proud so cool. um and i took my children there and my wife so it was uh it was an emotional emotional uh visit but it also made me appreciate and love what we do in australian and love what i do and that i can have the best of italy in australia so are both, are both of your parents originally from Calabria? Yeah, both from different parts, though. So. Different parts? Yeah. So, mum from Gatanzada, my father from Reggio. So, they met in Australia. Okay. Um, my father and his uh, his brother were, delivered bread to all the migrants when they arrived in Australia. So, and groceries and olive oil. So, w- Was there a big kind of migration from Calabria, basically? Massive, Was this yeah. sort of post-World War yeah, II? In the, uh, yeah, in the 50s. So... Like in Calabria in the fifties, you know, there was nothing. So um, almost like the, almost like in Italy today, where you see so many Italians come out to Australia, yeah, because there was no hope, there was no future. Well, it's just, it was the same with my family in the fifties. So they knew they had to get out of there, you know, to have a better life. So they came here literally with, you know, the shirts on their back. So, so not with their parents, they, they yeah, came with their parents, with their parents, yeah, okay. but just um, and it was basically like a, a huge boat, and yeah, yeah, basically, you know. Most yeah, of the people from Calabria relatives, got yeah. onto a boat and they all came to Melbourne. Yeah, they all came to Mel- most from well, most from our village uh, came from Melbourne. They came to Melbourne and um, and that was it. They had relatives that was here, so um, it was yeah, basically really community based, and they all helped each other, and you know they all prospered, which is um, you know in today's generation, it's sort of something that we don't think about. Mm. 
um, it was a totally different way of, uh, of life. So do they tend to the Calabrians, do they sort of have their own communities or really really just sort of an Italian community? Oh, no Italian in general. So I don't think, you know, I think, you know, growing up and growing up Italian in the fifties and sixties wasn't like it is today, you know, today being Italian, you know, is something to be proud of and something to be cherished in the 50s and 60s you know a lot of them or you know, almost didn't want to be italian you know it was um, really oh it was a, you know it was a totally different way everything was a lot different to what it is now now italian culture is embraced you know in the 50s and 60s i think you know it was a bit different so mm. so yeah so now they're uh yeah from if their villages are so small in Calabria, you see where they come from you're like god how the hell did they end up where they are in australia so i guess it, it's it's really important to consider that the, the, the accessibility to stuff that they were so familiar with just just food and, and beverages is just they didn't have it no they had uh oh but even in in italy as well they used to eat you know meat was something they ate one once a week you know my mum at the wow. age of five or six and seven you know would do cooking because my grandma would be in the fields all day and my um you know grandfather you know my my had left and come to australia to try and work and then my mum and my uh grandmother came over eight or nine years later so my mum didn't really see my grandfather for the first eight years of her life so you know the sacrifices they all made to come to australia was pretty massive so where was the original business based the original business well actually didn't have a shop front it was more it was almost like a virtual business so they operated they they bought bread and then delivered the bread to you know all the migrants who arrived in australia and from bread they started selling them olive oil and then wine and then they bought their first property in Flemington, mm-hmm. um, which was called Diner Brothers and it was like that for 30 years and then um, we had another store in Reservoir and then we built Bowen in 74 and it was a massive risk and everyone in the Italian community was like, God, how stupid are these people? You know, building an Italian supermarket and wine store in Bowen, it's... Uh, you know, they'll go broke within the first twelve months. So yeah, if you if, uh, if, if you don't been, know, born born is um, oh. it's very white bread. It's yeah. very middle class. Um, I know my my grandparents who were very conservative. They lived there for many 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 years. Um, away actually in North Bowen, but um, you know, it's it's yeah. very much sort of white picket fence. Yeah, um, it's not Brunswick. It's not Coburg. No. It's not. It's not an area that had a lot of. Italians or, or it's, it's not immigrants. it's not ethnically diverse spot on yeah so in the 70s it was probably more so so it was a massive risk and uh and in the end it's you know basically that now that's become our major store so you know basically Boccaccio is the hub for all our businesses so you know all our wholesale all our international staff all the importing you know the headquarters is Boccaccio and then everything branches out from that so at what point do they start working with wine or alcoholic beverages uh i think it would have been in the late 60s so uh boccaccio was established in 1963 Uh uh in the late 60s i would have been selling alcohol so but it was you know they used to used to buy um barrels from you know dairies in mclaren vale and bottle things themselves so it was uh a different way of doing business okay um and obviously even in the late 60s and the 70s um, wine consumption was pretty different to what it is now. Yeah. Was there even any Italian? Did people kind no. of think of Italy when they thought of no. wine? No, no. It was all, most of it was fortified. Yeah. And spirits. And it was only sort of late 70s, or early 70s that um, 
you know, the, the table wine became more popular and even... What about masala? Uh, yeah, masala, I, I still remember my grandma drinking masala, and, um, but it was, in the scheme of things, it wasn't a massive seller. So it's sure. not like, wasn't, you know, the, it was very... It wasn't as big as like sherry and port and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, they were big. Yeah. And beer was big. You know, the amount of, you know, people that tell us they used to buy eight or ten dozen VB long necks at a time, you know, those... Jesus. Uh, it's yeah, that's it makes you think. It's yeah, right. We have six tins of Peroni and think that's a good start, you know. So, well, yeah. I mean, I always um, think about the fact that you look at big hotels and stuff like that, and you think how they used to have massive parking lots next to them, yeah. and you just don't see it anymore. No, you don't. No, that's but, gone, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, which is good. It's a good yeah, thing. Yeah, I agree entirely. Um, and when did they so so the wine kind of grew as part of the business yeah. at what point did they sort of think you know maybe we should start making some of our own ah uh, well we didn't plant hodls until 97 so oh okay uh, it was I on thought, our, I thought it was a bit older than that no it feels had, like it's been around a long yeah, time yeah it is we've had the land since 69 oh okay um, so yeah. uh, they bought the land my, my grandfather on my father's side was a big believer of natural springs mm-hmm. so Hoddle's had two or three natural springs running through the property okay it still does so uh, when my grandfather saw that he said you know to my father and to my, my uncle like you gotta you gotta buy that property so um, they bought it and basically we just you, you, you left it and and then in 97 when my twin brother and I were on university holidays uh, with the help of Mario Marson who was at Mount Mary at the time mm-hmm. uh, we planted the first 12 acres uh, at Hoddle so Pinot Chardonnay and Pinot Blanc so um, well for one thing when you when when the family bought the property in the yeah. Arrow Valley there really wasn't a lot going on there was no. a, maybe a handful of producers who were yeah. now kind of have a bit of cult status yeah um but particularly up in in that part of the Yarra Yarra, it's pretty yeah. pretty Jim elevated and, and bit yeah. cold and so yeah the only other one um around i think uh, i actually had um andrew on an early episode uh and i think it was the late 70s yeah, that like would that. be. Yeah, they were. They, they've been as a vineyard and as a winery. The you know upper Yarra, they're basically the pioneers. So um, it's funny how much it's changed. Where you know the frosts and all that used to be so bad that I reckon on our side, if we'd planted vines in the seventies, mm. we would have lost every second vintage. Yeah, you know, obviously as the climate's warmed a little bit, upper Yarra, which is so cool, is still cool, but it's at a point now where it's for us, it's perfect for Pinot and Chardonnay. So. Yeah, we planted it in 97 and my twin brother never left, so... How did you and Frank decide, what, you know, what you guys were going to be doing? Uh, I don't know. It just sort of... There was sort of no communication and we just... He did his university degree, which was three years and then... What did he study? He studied straight commerce. Okay. Uh, I did com arts. As I said, I picked the longest degree I could find. <laughs> and... Um, and he did a year of retail at Picacho. Absolutely hated retail. Mm. And... Uh, you know, did basically did uh, hotels and stayed out there. So it was, um, yeah, he's never left. So he did, then he did viticulture by correspondence. And after about five years of retail, you know, I saw there was obviously a gap, you know, and, um, you know, especially Southern Italian wines, it's something that was so thin on the ground. So when we set up Mondo, we set it up to, to focus on uh, Southern Italy, especially. Um, and it sort of, everything's just evolved. It's amazing how, you know, there was, you know, we, I didn't have a, a plan to say, this is what I want to do in five years time. This is what I want to do 
in a year's time, everything's just sort of evolved the way it's way it's gone. So in five years' time, there'll probably be, or hopefully, another chapter, you know, in our family business where something else is involved. So, it's, what, what were your early kind of drinking habits, patterns, interests? Uh, well, I've always was loved was your, wine introduced to you even sort of before you were technically legally allowed yeah, to drink? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. It's always been wine's always been. Was it that typical table. Italian yeah. kind of philosophy of that you know the wine yeah. in particular is part of the meal? It's not you know an alcoholic beverage yeah, per se. Spot on, yeah. So even like I know with my kids, my kids are seven and three. You know, if I've got a glass of red or a glass of wine in my hand, they'll always ask me, you know, can I have a sip? Can I try it? You know, and and they'll give feedback. So it's the same. I was the same as my kids. It was something that. It was always a natural thing. It wasn't when we got to 18 or 16 or 17, okay, you can now drink. You know, we, you know, we, my father always let me have a sip of wine to try it. You know, my kids is the same. I'll always let them have a sip and try and try champagne and, you know, try red, red wine, try white wine. I think it's, it's, you know, a healthy way of living rather than getting someone to abstain until they're 18 and then say, right, go for it. Mm. So. Isn't there like an Italian saying about, you know, the, it's not a it's not a dining table if there's no wine and no bread or something like that. Ah, oh, yeah, I agree. Oh, well, it's definitely the case in our household. So <laughs> the first thing I do when I walk through doors is uh, before I take off my shoes or do anything is open a bottle of wine. So and we always have multiple loaves in the uh, in the house. So uh, with Boccaccio, we've got you know uh, three different bakers. We've got an Austrian baker, an Italian baker, and a guy who bakes all the normal breads. And uh, we've always got so many loaves in our house. I can't eat unless I. Eat and you have bread and a glass of wine. Mm. In, initially, what what sort of challenges did Boccaccio face, um, particularly like when I moved into Baldwin, Yeah, and they would have been fairly conservative yeah. drinkers, um, n- not conservative in terms of volume, perhaps, but but yeah. in terms of what they were actually drinking. What, um, what were the what, what were the challenges? Well, I, I think Boccaccio early on, we probably catered for that clientele really well in that. Darenberg and Taylor's and Tabilk and all those were probably our biggest selling wines and mm-hmm. they're fantastic wines. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest challenge has been in the last 10 years where, or last 10 or 15 years where our business has moved t- towards uh, at a retail level, more European wines. Okay. Um, and it's really educating our customers and, you know, doing something we love. Like we love Australian wines uh, and we also love Italian wines and, so it's saying to our customers who normally may drink Shiraz, fantastic, try a glass of this or try a bottle of this and see what you think. So I think the challenge, the biggest challenge we've faced at a retail level at Boccaccio in the last 10 to 15 years is introducing that continental or that greater continental element to it. Mm. Um, and I think if we hadn't have done that, you know, I think our business today would be very different to what it, it you know, would have been if we didn't do it. So um, it was, a, yeah, just a... A really, well, I wouldn't say clever because we didn't even know we're doing it. We sort of just basically said to ourselves, like, this is what we have to do. I find it interesting that um, wine retail seems to be going to through a bit of a renaissance, yeah, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, when you look at kind of what wine retail was in sort of the late 80s and, and 90s, with sort of the birth of Dan Murphy's and then the subsequent purchase of that to become, you know, one of the two leading um, retailers in terms of uh, alcoholic beverages and wine in particular, um, that you have now a lot of these independent 
sort of, you know, in some cases quite small, very sort of edgy, really trying to establish themselves as being quite different. Um, Boccaccio for me kind of sits outside of that because it's it sort of, it's always been a, a kind of a fringe, a fringe um, retail outlet, um, you know, because it's, it's not yeah. super close to the, the, the yeah. city. Um, so it is a, it's a bit more of a destination it's kind of on, shop. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but sort of with that kind of specialty focus yeah. while still kind of being accessible. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And that's always been, I, I hate alienating and I hate like, you know, we'd never do only Australian or, or like, I think you've got to offer, you know, something for everyone and, you know, with prices as well, you know, we've got wines that start at, you know, Italian wines that are $8 and we also have Italian wines at $800. Mm. And it's, I think that's one of the things that, that people love about Boccaccio that, you know, it's almost like heading into a bit of a, uh, a treasure chest and see what you can pull out. There's so many different wines and so there's so much variety and we also pride ourselves on, on, you know, not gouging people that, you know, our prices are fair and, you know, our service is good. And, you know, if you offer all the people, you know, the right, you know, all those, those right characteristics, well, then you've got no reason for them to go anywhere else. So, you know, I think the customers that come to Picacho love coming to Picacho and love supporting a, you know, family-owned independent business, which, you know, they probably don't get the same feel and love if they went to a dance or VCs or something like that. So, mm. um, but I think as well, it's all, a lot of it's cyclical in that, you know, I think some of these stores that start off like Dan's that started off at one store and is now at, I don't know, a hundred stores, they become like the Titanic and they be, can't, they can't be as progressive and fast moving as a lot of the smaller independents. And, um, you know, that's why I think there's, as that happens, there's always room for smart independence and, you know, Blackheart and Sparrows are, you know, someone that I, you know, a, a fair business that I respect greatly and how they've been able to adapt and, mm. and do what they do. And there's lots of really good independence. And as a fellow independent and as an importer, I love supporting the independence. And, um, you know, we've been, we've had offers, you know, from all the majors to sell almost on a yearly basis and we would never sell out. And same with our importing arm and our, our winery, we would never sell to the majors. You know, I think it's great to support small, independent, you know, family businesses. Mm. And that's all we try and do across all our businesses. It's interesting you sort of describe it as like a treasure chest from yeah. from what you've um, you you painted a really fantastic picture a few weeks ago of what the old yeah. kind of um, Boccaccio Cellars was um, in terms of it was a much smaller space and really sort of packed in. Yeah. So I can imagine kind of, and, and sort of, I, I, again, I never got to see it, unfortunately, um, the old Europa Cellars oh, yeah, um, yeah. in East Melbourne. You know, there's sort of, it's it's a bit dark and there's just yeah. boxes everywhere and you kind of just, maybe you go digging and you find something and go, yeah. what's this? And they say, oh, jeez, I forgot we even had that. Yeah, yeah. Was that kind of what it was uh, back in the to day? To a degree, but also I suppose because a lot of wholesale was done, you know, our wholesale business has grown at a massive extent and the winery and Boccaccio. So we we're literally out of room. So there was so much stuff. Un you know, we have a massive underground cellar. And so much wine in that cellar wasn't featured on the shelves of Picacho. So, yeah. you know, to me, I almost thought that, you know, as well that we're doing our customers a disservice in the fact that we had so much great wine that unless you took a customer down to our cellar, which was not always practical, 
you know, they didn't realize it was there. So that's one of the things I love about our new space is that everything that we have in our sellers, you know, is available to purchase and is, avail- is available in store. So, um, it, you know, it gives me a real kick to bring up these old wines and when we put them out and people, the you know, people's eyes lit up when they saw it. So. Mine certainly did when I uh, first saw saw some of those bottles. Yeah. How long has the, the new sellers been in the works for? Uh, about two and a half years. So we, we had to wait 25 years to buy the remaining freehold property in our uh, group of properties. It was smack bang in the middle. Right. Um, so we bought it three years ago and we started planning. So the planning took two and a half years because... Like if we were going to do it, we had to do it right. So mm-hmm. um, solar panels on the roof, CO2 refrigeration, it's as green and as efficient as any supermarket in the world. So, um, yeah, I think to me, you know, that other supermarket and wine store served us well for 40 years. You know, hopefully this next one can serve us for the next generation of our family. And, um, yeah, we weren't going to do something and do, it and do a half a job. So, um, yeah, so wrapped in how the first stage has panned out and to think there's two more stages to follow, which will be as good um, as our wine store, you know, puts a big smile on my face. Mm, I like that, you know, what you've described, um, how everything's just going to work together and it's going to be just this, yeah. what I think of as a gastronomic paradise. Yeah. Because, you know, you can go in on a, on a Sunday and you can go and taste some really amazing wines, which is what I did yesterday, tasted some beautiful Barolos. Uh, and then you can walk through and you can see all these beautiful meats hanging. Yeah. You can see bread being baked fresh. Yeah. You can go and taste some stuff. Um, I, I can imagine it's just going to really energize that whole area because, you know, I went to school just down the yeah, road. Exactly. And, and, yeah. and I remember, um, you know, the, the, like the coals on the on the corner of, um, of um, High Street and Burke Road was just sort of, you know, like any other coals, it's yeah. just kind of a bit soulless. That was, that's the uh, that was the first coals in Australia. And really? Thing, yeah. To think that you know coals a massive corporation that Boccaccio has been able to flourish. You know, that was their first store. So, you know, one of the things with our new new supermarket is that the first thing you do when you walk into that supermarket, you're going to see 300 legs of bruschetta hanging. Amazing. You know, and that's a statement to say you have arrived in a European supermarket. But like our wine store, we haven't said, okay, you know, it is going to be a European supermarket and there's going to be, a, there's a prosciutto room and a cheese room. You'll still be able to do your full shop as well. So, yeah. you know, everything that is in Coles and Woolies is available and, you know, will be available in Boccaccio. So, mm. you know, all our meat, you know, we, we get in, uh, it comes as bodies, nothing's bought in a box and our meat, but yeah, our butchers, you know, cut all the, um, cut all the meat off the bodies and, and we sell it. So it's a really, natural way of of selling food and wine so our bakers bake our own bread um we, we try to be as hands-on as possible so i can imagine there'd be a lot of people who would come in and just go oh my god I've, i never realized that's how it's done i'm just so yeah. used to it being pre-packaged i can just take it off the shelf and yeah you know, boop, just take it home and, and cook it but to actually yeah. see it all happening I think it's probably going to be great for people to kind of get a bit more respect for the actual process itself. Oh, I agree entirely. And and to think that, you know, once it's all done, that it'll all be, you know, it, it'll it's a, it'll be a celebration of all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. you know, every Sunday we have tastings of Boccaccio. We'll, we'll be having food tastings on Sundays and Saturdays. Um, 
you know, in, in the new supermarket. So it's, yeah, like it's been a lot of sleepless nights, but I'm super excited to see, uh, you know, what's going to happen next. You talk about um, you sort of, I guess, frustrations in, in getting access to wines, particularly what led to you kind of studying Mondo, yeah. uh, Italian wines of the South. Um, back in the day, what, what sort of Italian wines were available in Australia? Oh, it was very, very limited. So it's, um, you know, and I think storage and the way those wines were shipped and everything wasn't ideal. So yeah. a lot of the time those wines came to Australia in, in not great condition, which also then gave Italian wines a reputation. So I think if you look at in the last 10 years or 15 years, how, you know, importers gone about, gone about bringing Italian wines into the country, it's been fantastic in that it's the wines arrived in Australia in its best possible condition. Mm. You know, when a wine travels half the way around the world and it's not a refrigerated container, you know, good things can't happen. So it's, um, you know, the Italian wine scene's changed unbelievably so in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. And it's, you know, you know, you sell wine, Italian wine, I sell important, I sell Italian wine. It's a great time to be selling Italian wine. There's um, so much buzz and so much interest and, that hasn't always been the case, you know, for a number of reasons. I think back to when I first started working in the wine industry 10 years ago, you know, just a, a Liquorland store and pretty much the only Italian wines we had were like Riccadonna. Yeah, Riccadonna, yeah. We didn't even have Prosecco. Yeah. We had, I think we had Lambrusco maybe, but really shit Lambrusco. Um, and we had, I think, Chianti Ruffino. Yeah, Chianti. Well, like yeah. even the stuff in the, like they, I can't believe they still had it 10 years ago. Yeah. The, the ones in the kind of the yeah, wicker. Yeah, wicker baskets. Yeah. Oh my God. You yeah, know, which is, it, which is so that kind of cliche. You, yeah. If you watch movies from the, from the, the 80s and stuff like that, you know, it's that, it is that kind of wicker basket yeah, with, with a candle totally. in it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's so oh, crazy. It's changed. And you think today. You know, all the indigenous wines that are sold, Norello Muscalese from Etna and um, Greco from Calabria and uh, Maliocco from Calabria and, you know, you go up, Primitive Rural from Puglia. There is so much diversity and so much interest in these Italian wines. Ten years ago, as I said, you could count all the varieties that are imported on one hand. Do you think that that has something to do with the, the increase in quality and interest in Italian cuisine? That and also I think that people are so well educated and travel and mm. um travel definitely the interest in food and wine is uh, in italian food and wine is at an all-time high which is fantastic people are a sponge they want to know as much about um you know where a wine comes from and where a f where food comes from that it's it's fantastic because it allows us as an importer to bring in some really unique wines mm. and make it commercial and that people are prepared to buy, buy them. So, you know, when I first imported Bussbouchard or six years ago, I absolutely loved the wine. I wasn't sure that I had a market to sell that with those wines because five or six years ago, even Etna then was really not an unknown, but not far from being an unknown, um, where today, you know, oh my God, it's we import it. Opposite. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's like a stampede to get the wines, you know, I'm, um, in a way, I'm delaying importing some of the single crews. With La Maresca as well. La Maresca, yeah. how it sells um, out. Yeah. So, you know, I've, all, I've said to La Maresca as well, like, you know, take on another vineyard, do whatever. I'll buy all of it because I literally can't keep up. You yeah. Know, it, it sells out within 24 hours, which is a good problem to have, but also a bad problem because 
so many people aren't getting to try as one. So, yeah, um, absolutely. Tell me about sort of the decision to, to set up Mondo and, and if you had, if you kind of took a particular um, principle or philosophy into starting Mondo. Uh, I did. The only, the major philosophy I had is that I only wanted to work with great varieties um, that are grown in the, in the region they originate from. So I wasn't in, in, interested in importing Cabernet or Shiraz. Um, so no Super Tuscans? No Super Tuscans, no, no Chardonnay, no Sauvignon Blanc. Everything had to be indigenous um, to that region. So, you know, some of the first wines that we started out with were things like, you know, Anlianico from Basilicata and uh, Primitivo from Puglia. They, they, as a commercial, what you know, didn't really make as much sense, but I thought that was something that we would not, you know, stray in. You know, going forward, I think Mondo's been going, you know, seven or eight years now that it's exactly the same thing. Yeah. You know, we don't have any Cabernet in our portfolio. Everything is indigenous. And, and we also wanted to focus on southern Italy. And even though, you know, we do Tuscany really well, you know, Beyond Santi and Soldata, two of my favourite producers, you know, southern Italy is something that's been neglected for so long. So our focus on Southern Italy uh, was to showcase just the amazing value and the amazing quality you could have at such a low price. So what's well, funny actually um, when I was um, traveling over in Europe two years ago, you know, I had a very typical kind of Melbourne yeah. um, sort of education of, of wine. And certainly, you know, even though they're great importers, the importers that I was working with um, at King Godfrey when I was yeah. buying there, were as you say sort of focusing a lot on the north and you know yeah. actually great wines um northern italy a bit yeah. more money kind of a little bit more investment in in improving quality by and large southern italy unfortunately was a little bit sort of slow to catch up but i just i, I remember kind of planning ahead and thinking about when i was going to be in the south because i knew i wanted yeah. to go to the south and you know i did go down all the way in salento in puglia yeah. i went down to, to sicily you know i and i just sort of went i i don't know what what there is I, and it was so impossible to research it's just yeah. it's, you know i just didn't know where to look for stuff you know i wish i had have known you then because you yeah. would have been able to introduce me to some amazing stuff hopefully i'll get to visit some of these guys in the future but but you know, even even three years ago, um, some of these Italian, southern Italian regions and varieties was so unknown. Yeah, it um, does. And now some of these, you know, producers that you're working with, Fatalone and Monetieri, yeah, uh, they have a real cult following. Yeah. Well, Monetieri, for example, was a, a to put it in the bluntest terms possible, a peasant farmer mm. that had this amazing vineyard. That was an unknown. Um, and the thing is to think that, you know, his expression of Alianagol, which is such an amazing wine, is available under 30 bucks at retail level. When you compare what you have to buy for Barolo and Barbaresco and Brunello, which yeah. is north of $100, mm. just shows you just how cheap Southern Italy is. And their prices are still 20 years behind the north. So, mm. Mm. Um, yeah, puts a massive smile on my face when I import a producer like Molitari or like La Modesca or Fatalani that you just think, God, the value when you see the quality of the wines is unbelievable. So. Was there also a decision to kind of work with producers who produced wines that were reflective of the area in terms of the tradition rather than kind of modernity yeah. and, and cleaning wines up and using a lot of chemicals, that kind of thing? Yeah, it has. It wasn't something that 
you know, I didn't have a, a, a book of principles that I wrote down and say that this has to be like this. It was just the producers that we've been drawn to. I'm a traditionalist at heart, so everything to me, the wines have to be traditional. I don't want to see any oak. I don't want to see a modern hand through the wines. Mm. I just want to see it as they should be. So, you know, Rowan is a classic example where ultra-traditionalist, but such fantastic wine. So if you have a look through all our producers, you know, there's a common theme in that most of them are family-owned or mm. they're all family-owned. Uh, they're hands-off winemakers uh, and they're, they're true to their variety. So, But, in, you know, in the limited experience I've had with the wines, obviously I'm looking forward to trying some more. They're also not kind of showboat kind of wines. No. They're not points chasing. They're not forced wines. Yeah. Um, they're not trying to be anything that they're not. Yeah, I agree entirely. And it's funny... You know, I was having a chat to a fellow importer at our Brolo tasting yesterday and, you know, he said a retailer, you know, buys wine off him depending on points. Mm. And as an importer, the last thing I think about are points. Yeah. You know, if a wine gets 83 Vintage points Vintage reports, from, that kind of stuff. Yeah. If a wine gets 83 points from Galliani and I love the wine, I'll import it. Yeah. You know, obviously, you have to be true to yourself. You, you can't import wine on points you know selling wine on points is a very dangerous thing you, you, you know you have to back yourself and back your judgment and your customers you have to let your customers your customers should know that that they should back you so you know if we say something's good at a retail level or a wholesale level you know i think you know we get heard because we're happy to put ourselves and stand behind those wines so regardless if they're get great points or they, they get average points. It, you talked about um, the, the the challenges, I guess, uh, but also the rewards in terms of um, having the retail side of the business, you, you know, to introduce yeah. customers and being able to establish a, a relationship with people. So they're coming back and they're saying, oh, you know, Anthony, that wine you recommended was fantastic. What else have you got? You know, introduce yeah. me to something else. How, how difficult did you find it? In terms of the trade, in terms of, you know, sommeliers, restaurateurs uh, uh, and other retailers? No, not hard at all. I, I think... Were they were they just sort of ready to sort of see these kind of wines, do you think? Uh, yeah, I think they were. Yeah, I think... Um, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, you know, my family own a winery, a retail outlet and an import business. Yeah. But we've made made it clear along the whole, whole way through and with HODLs, you know... In regards to allocation, Boccaccio gets the last allocation. It goes out to everyone else first. Okay. Um, we've made sure there's been no conflicts of interest and it's just worked unbelievably well. So um, I think just having that vertical integration where people know that we make wine, that we import wine, that we sell wine, I think, you know, we cover all aspects and I think it's, you know, it's just not something that's been frowned upon. It's been something that's been embraced. So. Mm. You know, we made our own one out of Montalcino this year, um, you know, 1,800 bottles, and it was snapped up by the trade within a week. I think 1,700 bottles went out to the trade, and, you know, Boccaccio got 100 bottles. I think mm. my younger brother was going to use that. Do you got one of them? My younger brother was going to use that wine for his wedding, and uh, he missed out because, you know, Boccaccio was the last one to get an allocation. So I think, yeah, the way we've done it has been... You know, we've yeah, really, really good. So I think you know, Hoddles was a great, a great experience for us in working out how to separate all our businesses and to keep everything separate and fair. And I think Mondo's been a natural progression from there.
Yeah, well, I, I um, particularly like with the these Montalcino wines, and I, I also got a, a bottle of the Chianti and the Prosecco as well. Yeah. These beautiful, bright, uh, eye, really eye-catching labels. Um, you know, putting them onto stuff like Instagram, people sort of said, "Oh, those pretty yeah. labels." Um, what was the kind of the, the idea behind uh, sort of doing well, those those wines? Well, I've always loved the wines, and it's working with our producers to say, like I. And it's this sort of split into two with the existing wines. I absolutely love the wine. Mm. But visually, you, you have to have everything. You can't have one aspect, not the other. So, you know, one of the wineries, you know, Umberto Prosecco, you know, I went to the winery and said, I absolutely love your Prosecco. But that label is, uh, you know, not something that I love. So, you know, I would like to design our own label and, and to market out in our own way. And maybe for the first, you know, one or two emails and phone calls, there was a bit of, uh, you know, they were a bit unsure. But after they saw what we'd planned, it's, you know, it's now the opposite. So, mm. you know, with existing wines to, you know, present it as we want it presented, it's been fantastic. And then also, you know, taking it one step further as an importer to not only buy finished wine, but actually to go through after vintage and go to these wineries and say, that is an amazing barrel. Please don't blend that barrel back with the other 15 barrels. Uh, keep that barrel separate. Keep it hands off. Bottle it in a certain way and we'll buy that barrel and produce it under our own label. And that's what we've done with Fratelli Dana. And yeah, it's been fantastic. So next year, there's early next year, there's a 2010 Brunello, which will come out. Wow. Um, and they're the sort of things that we love do, doing, I think. In anything in life and in business, you can't set stand still. As I said, in five years' time, we might have another business in food and wine, but we'll always evolve. I'm, I'm not the sort of person that, you know, if I'm on the phone, getting me to sit still is very, very hard. <laughs> uh, I like to walk around and pace and my mind is always thinking and I, I use the same philosophy in life and in business and, yeah, it is always something new and exciting that I've got in my head that I want to do, so... They might sometimes work, they might work, might not work, but I'll always give it a crack and I'm very lucky that I've had a father that with me and my brothers uh, and my sister that he's never, ever said, do this or don't do that. Mm. With Mondo, he's never said, "Do uh, you know, I don't want you to do that. He's always let us do whatever we want. Same at, at a vineyard level, Franco's always had 100% control. And I think as a father... I know that is such a hard thing to do because he's established the business. He's the one that's taken all the risk. Mm -hmm. He's let his kids become involved in the business and have a major say. And in doing that, he's never pressured us or uh, said that you have to take it down a certain path, which you know, is uh, unbelievable. Mm. So, Something that I've, um, I have a theory on, um, the kind of increase in interest um, and... and um, uh, the consumers actually buying and drinking, enjoying Italian wine has come from the increase in Italian varieties being um, worked within Australia in terms of the wines. Um, you know, Sangiovese is now a variety that people are a lot more familiar with, even though they might not necessarily know that oh, you know, it's Chianti or yeah. Brunello, that kind of thing. Um, do, you, do you think that that has uh, made I, I a do, bit of an impact? I do, but I also think that there's an issue um, and that one thing that really gets me annoyed, it probably works in my favour, but how can I import Montepulciano or, or 
Gregor or Fiano or, or Sangiovese and sell it at a cheaper price than how we want we produce it in Australia. Just if I was an Australian. If I was an Australian producer, I would make sure that my Sangiovese or my Prosecco wasn't at a price where it's double the price of some fantastic Chianti or Prosecco. And I think that is one area where, you know, we've let ourselves down in Australia by planting these varieties. I think pricing has to be looked at to say, right, if you, how can you expect people to buy your wine when you can buy the real deal at half the price? I guess that is kind of the challenge in the sense that these are entirely new varieties they're working with in the vineyards. For one thing, that they're not necessarily as familiar about how, how it's going to be best expressed in their, for lack of a better word, terroir. Um, but also the kind of how, the best way to stylistically make the wine. I, I do agree to a certain extent that the, the locally made Italian varietal wines don't cut the mustard and, and they're also going to be more expensive, possibly because it takes a bit of investment to completely propagate new variety, new varieties, new vines uh, in a vineyard. Uh, in this day and age, you know, costs are much, much higher than say, you know, the 1970s and 80s when when there was a lot more stuff going in. Um, I think, I think, yeah, it, it it is a bit tough though for people. Um, I don't think, I, th- I think to a certain extent, though, people still want to buy Australian. Yeah. Look, I think if. If it was priced in a different way, yeah, and that, that you would allow people to try some, you know, fantastic Nero's from Australia that are fifteen bucks, yeah, you know, rather than having to spend twenty five or thirty bucks, yeah, I think those Italian varietals are now all grown in fantastic regions in Australia, yeah. I think the only thing letting us down is pricing, um, and I'm not saying that. I'm saying that, you know, to me, the, as the pricing stands at the moment, it benefits me, you know, as an importer, I sure. can sell wines at 10 bucks less a bottle than the Australian varieties, but I would love to see, you know, some of these wineries or someone come out with Nero or Alianic or, you know, $15 that you'd say, God, we can actually do this in Australia for the same price. It's um, tough. It, ta- it takes, I think, someone with a bit of economy of scale maybe someone who's been around for long enough that they're not sort of sitting on huge amounts of debt, but they can kind of sacrifice a little bit of margin to kind of establish that product. I I agree. But the the big guys who are doing it aren't making particularly good wines. I agree, but you look at the Hoddles example and how how we price Pinot and Chardonnay, especially Pinot, very, very hard variety to grow. You know, Wickham's Road, which sells out in, say, two months of the year, yeah. retail at 17 or $18. These varieties don't have to be expensive. You no. know, we've, um, I don't know, I don't, I don't, you know, it, it could be a conversation for a whole other podcast. But I think it's, <laughs> sure, yeah. It's you're something that's... More than, uh, more than happy to have you back on. Yeah, something um, has to be looked at. Have you have, have you guys thought about planting some Italian varieties, or do you have any Italian varieties planted up in? Ah, uh, we've bottles? got. Uh, well, the only sort of variety that's out, Pinot out is, is yeah, Pinot Pinot Blanc. That's the only thing, and I think, you know, we've been careful to plant varieties that suit, you know, our climate, our sure. bottles. So, if there was an Italian variety, red or white, that I thought or that Franco thought would go fantastically well at the vineyard, yeah, you know, we'd probably look at it. Um, so it's one of those things where, look, at the moment, no, but if there was something that jumped at us, out at us, we you know we'd consider it. Oh, I'd be interested so. to, to see how you guys would um, produce an Italian, because there's not a lot of Italian variety ones coming out of the Arabella. No, there's not. Uh, Steve Weber makes a neb. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Luke Lambert makes in there. Uh, Yering Station been playing around with Sangiovese and and Nev for a while, but I don't think they've hit the heights of Luke Lambert. No. Um, so yeah, you know, look, it will be interesting, and that's you know as the Yarra Valley changes and the climate changes, it's something that you know other varietals which weren't. Uh, weren't something we would consider five or ten years ago or even two years ago yeah will come into consideration well i look forward to um to seeing how things change but uh anthony i really appreciate your time like i said uh thank you very much for joining me um what's the best way for people to um get in touch with you and with all uh, the businesses oh uh, just by instagram's a fantastic way of following us so um yeah instagram uh, so at Boccaccio Sellers, Sellers or, or, or Boccaccio, just Boccaccio? At Boccaccio Seller, so without the S. And then my Instagram account is uh, Antdana, so A-N-T-H-D-A-N-N-A. Right. So, and you'll get the full aspect of what we do and what we love doing. And there'll be links to um, to the various websites through there as well. Yeah, you can get through all through there. Fantastic. Well, um, all the best for Christmas uh, and the new year. I look forward to uh, catching up with you again. And um, yeah. Thanks very much. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening to the Vincast. As always, guys, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Intrepid Wino, and you can follow the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast. Jump onto Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino, and you can like my page there. Uh, you can jump onto the website, intrepidwino.com. That's got all the previous episodes of the podcast, as well as lots and lots of writings that I've done in the past. But I always appreciate you guys jumping onto iTunes and, or Stitcher and subscribing to the podcast. And whilst you please do leave a rating and review, it does help me out. And uh, yeah, get in contact, ask me some questions you'd like uh, answered on the podcast or suggest some uh, potential guests. But otherwise, until next time, bye.